I'm James Crichton, and this is Actors on Process. Today is Monday, August 31st, and today's guest is Kuhu Verma. I chatted with Kuhu several months ago now, and in the process of re-listening and editing today's episode, I was overwhelmed and inspired all over again. She is both an extraordinary musician and storyteller, and I'm so grateful to her for being so open and for speaking so passionately about the inner workings of how music flows through her. I'm also grateful because she gives listeners the rare privilege of feeling like a fly on the wall as she reminisces on the process of building her character, Velma, in Octet, for which she recently won the 2020 Lucille Lortel Award for Outstanding Featured Actress in a Musical. This entire interview is full of incredibly specific and astute knowledge, insight, recommendations, advice, difficult truths, and her love note to the American theater at the end will knock you out. When you finish listening, please pass this episode along to someone else in need of some revitalizing joy. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, and be sure to follow me at Actors on Process on Instagram. And now, enjoy today's episode with Kuhu Verma. everywhere. Um, I was born in New Delhi. My first language is actually Hindi, not English, um, but she fakes it well. Um, and I moved to LA shortly after when I was very, very young um, with my family. My parents immigrated here. Um, and then I kind of was everywhere. I was in LA for such a short amount of time that it doesn't count. I still say that I've never been. Um, then New Jersey, then Ohio, and I eventually settled here in Pennsylvania. Um, wow. Yeah, kind of everywhere, um, which, you know, I didn't mind at all because I was still kind of like forming who I was. And I like to say that even though I came to America when I was three, I kind of was not fully assimilated into whiteness until I was about 11 or 12. Mm. And so that's when it started to matter where I was and if I was moving or not. Um, yeah, so who I, I guess who I was was obnoxiously obsessive about the things I liked uh, to the point of being very callous and like not respecting other people's boundaries about those things. Um, like <laughs> I was so obsessive about, about theater and about music, um, but not even outward sources, right? It wasn't even like, I didn't really even know about Broadway until I was like applying for college. So it was more so like, what does music mean to me? And how does it feel inside? Rather than like, this, this is the music that I like listening to. So I was like greatly in inner as a kid in that way. I, I relate to this, but what, what, was your, what was your way in? Like what? All, well, I guess it was like all I knew as I was getting into the world of theater and this industry was, okay, this is my relationship with my own voice. That's the only thing I know. And I know it super well. 
what can I do with that skill of knowing exactly what my voice is? What can I do with that skill of knowing on like a religious and spiritual level what singing is? You know, how can I transform the prayer that is singing to my to mm. me and transform that into something that I can possibly do with my life? And there yeah. was never any really other option. I want to just talk about sort of, I read in an interview of yours, I, I stalked you thoroughly to prepare for this, but um, I wanted to just sort of talk about the importance and effect of high school theater in your life. You, you spoke a little bit about that in the interview and it really um, resonated with me as well. I, so it's funny, the first show that I auditioned for in high school was High School Musical. <laughs> and I got in as a freshman in high school and I said that I wasn't gonna do it because my best friend did not get in with me. And I just like didn't do theater that year. And I think that's so funny because I'm like, okay, so that's the moment that I decided that the people in theater matter more than, than the doing of theater. And I think that's kind of set a very nice um, pathway for how I handle my life in general. The people in theater matter than the theater itself sometimes. Uh, and prioritizing that means more theater in the future. It's like long-term versus short-term, you know? Um, and then I did Aida. I did Beauty and the Beast. I was Belle in Beauty and the Beast. Um, I was not Aida in Aida. I was Emneris, the Renee Scott part. Yes, honey. Um, people were not happy. They were like, but that's a white part. <laughs> And I was like, no, it's a part that needs to be able to sing. So. I was going to say, did they hear you sing it? Of course not. They were like, it doesn't make sense. I was like, well, we already have another brown girl doing Aida. So I can't only play Nehepka. <laughs> <laughs> what year was this? Um, oh, God. Let's see. 2014, 20, so it was probably 2012. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So, wow, I'm happy that Aida's like done. I just know that album. I love Aida. I am like, I think it is probably my favorite musical in the entire universe, to be quite frank. And I think it's because Heather Headley changed my life, number one. I am just like a slut for Elton John, Tim Rice musicals. I don't know what it is about it. I just think they have such a way of like mixing pop sensibility with just dramatic mega musicalness that I really admire. Mm. Could do Amen. it forever. Yeah, but yeah, that was high school for me. And I was like, so those are the only four show shows that I knew, right? Mm. I was like, these shows that I come in contact with high school, that's it. I don't really know about like Broadway and what that is. No one that I know knows about Broadway. We were not a high school that did the Freddies. Um, so it was very cool discovering it newly in college, right. what theater was. But so what led you there? How did you know like, I'm serious about this. I'm taking it to the next level. I think like it was less of like a decision that like I'm taking it to the next level and more like what have I it's like I actually don't know what I'm doing at all but if I look back what are all of my decisions usually always based on mm. like what has my history of mentality been and it's always come back to one thing it's like sometimes it's like in those moments where you're like I'm not in love with that person they're my friend and then you look back and you're like for x amount of years they're, they've been my priority. Mm. So what does that mean? Do the math, Kuhu. So it was wow. kind of that. <laughs> yeah. Like, look where everything is adding up. Yeah, it's like, you don't, it's like, you made the decision actually 
it's not you, it's not like I made the decision. It's like, you've been making that decision in small ways for X amount of time. You've already been making it. So all you have to do now is keep doing it. Was it, was it easy for you to apply? My family was very reluctant. They were like, you're going to be a music educator. You're going to have a backup play and you're going to do something. And I've had to fight like tooth and nail for them to finally say, okay. Yeah, backup plan uh, is, what a trigger phrase. Um, I have heard that a lot. Um, But what's so great about my parents is that if you want something, really, they're like, okay, if you are the best in your level of this work, you can do it. And so that was the negotiation. They were like, okay, if you're going to do this, fine. If you are really saying that you don't want a backup plan, okay, but then you have to prove to us that you are going to be the best. And so I guess that's what I'm still trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. They, they trust me on some level that they're like, I yeah. can see that, you know, it's, it's kind of working out for her. And so I will lay off a little bit and we'll, in, we'll invest. In and that's something that Asian parents do very well. They invest in your education. They'll, they'll pay, that's a huge privilege, but they'll pay for your stuff if they know it's going to blossom later on. Mm-hmm. And this is what led to NYU, right? Yes, it is. And, and it was the Steinhardt School of Music or were it, you at, okay, cool. It was, it was. I did most of my work with Tish. Um, I don't really, and I've talked about this previously quite a lot and qu- quite openly, that um, Steinhardt as a program was more harmful than, than, than good and well-meaning. Um, in my career. And so it was, I kind of attribute like my work with people from all different schools who were performers at NYU and NYU was an institution mm-hmm. and been, and the city and like being in that network was, I think had way more to do with my success and my like uh, forward acceleration. I'll say. Sure. Yeah. Um, Steinhardt was kind of a mess uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but I just am thankful that I was, you know, had easy access to the city. Of course. Well, I mean, if you had to choose then from the school in general, was there a favorite class or, or maybe a class that you benefited the most from? Yeah, it's like corny and like such a cop out, but like private voice lessons are the only way to get better. Like it just is, um, you know, NYU is a business and art schools in general are a business which I think I forgot. And everyone, I mean, it's the only place where you can hear facts and people can teach you and they might still be wrong. Um, Because what they're teaching you is coming from an extension of their identity Mm. and their view of the world. And that's what art is. And so you're essentially learning an extension of people's opinions from their own experience and that's it. And what works for them. Yeah, which is very helpful and really, really great. But a great teacher figures out what your world is and finds a path in that world Mm. that's going to make you better. And I feel like the only way to do that is voice lessons. And I was very blessed to have an amazing voice teacher, Matthew Shepard Smith at Steinhardt, who understood that uh, going the normal pathways was not going to cut it. And looking at my identity and looking at what I was non-negotiable on and respecting that and moving forward with that in mind is so important for a young artist. Yeah. 
Were you, I, I mean, not to get too technical, but like, were you studying voice before college and, and, and were you experimenting with all different styles of singing or did that open up to you at NYU? I, I think uh, the majority of my life, like, so a, a lot of the work that I do is genre bending and vocal flexibility. So I find it to be my life's purpose to convince the, the listener to believe that whatever genre I'm singing is like my forte. So like if there's a listener and I'm singing opera, I want to be able to convince them that I am an opera singer, capital O. Uh, same thing with jazz, same thing with R&B, same thing with musical theater and so on and so forth. Um, and so, and I feel like I was doing that just with audio from a very young age because I also grew up with Indian music, Hindustani music around the house and a lot of different kinds of world music. Mm. Um, so I was listening to like Sting and also in the same breath, I was listening to Hindustani music yeah. and trying to emulate, um, there's a party trick I do, but trying to emulate all the different kinds of riffs and like melismas that exist, right? There's like operatic melismas and there's pop riffs and then there's um, Hindustani, like classical Hindustani riffing. And it's all the same, but it's all completely different depending mm. on your breath and your placement. And it was like that kind of stuff that really fascinated me. Wow. Well, I can't wait to talk about Octet, but I don't want to jump ahead because we're really <laughs> sort of like setting up the beautiful building blocks for it. But let's sort of dig into the work a bit. I mean, I want to talk about advocating for yourself and opening doors and, and sort of how you did that. And, and to quote you, uh, quote, unusual path. Um, a big question that I get from a lot of listeners is like, how did you get an agent? And again, this same interview, I think, that I read of yours from the Philadelphia Inquirer, I'm wondering if you could talk about the audition that led to both the theatrical adaptation of Monsoon Wedding, as well as The Big Sick. Sure. Um, I have a lot of people to thank for that, because I feel like along the way, whether or not I even speak to them now, there are people that I have come with struggles as far as feeling stuck, um, yearning for a challenge. And most of the time the people are like, you know what, you should just fucking do it. You know what, you should just go to this open call. And if you're embarrassed, then I know that we and you have the resilience to be able to get over it. Um, it's far better to get over something rather than like pining for it from far away, I think. Um, in love and in auditioning. And so, <laughs> In both, in both of them. I mean, days. I've often heard you should treat an audition like a date. You know what yeah, I mean? Which is so funny because I'm terrible at dating. <laughs> I mean, I'm truly so bad at going on dates. Um, I still cringe to this day. I have not been able to let go. But <gasps> the audition that it was, I was actually, I was in a relationship with someone at the time. And I was like, sophomore year at NYU, I believe. And I was like, fuck, all these Tish people, they, they were also Steinhardt at that time. Um, and I was like, oh, all these Tish people are like at all these casting calls. And, you know, obviously no one's like booking anything because we're sophomores, but they know what the inside of the room looks like. They know what that energy feels like. And I feel like I am not even, I don't know what this is. And they like looked on playbill.com and they were like, listen, there's this open casting call. It'll be like a great, like first introduction, your first audition ever in the city. It'll be great. It's called Monsoon Wedding. It seems right up your alley. Just go. What's the worst that can happen? It feels like they speak your language, they have your culture, it'll be like a good introductory thing. So I went um, and they saw me and it was literally like one person in the room. Um, 
and 15 minutes after I walked out, uh, they said that they wanted to call me back for the lead character. And I just kept going in over and over and over again until I was in the first workshop. Um, so not many lessons to take away from that, I guess, <laughs> except, unfortunately, um, except for like, I don't know. Yes, there you, is. Go. Just you know go. I mean? Go. And you know what? I had a lot of reasons to be embarrassed there. I said a lot of cringy things. I'm sure I was acting like a puppy dog. I'm sure. But it just so happened that that energy was exactly what the lead character had in that moment. And that's all you need. It's less about, sure, if you have the talent and the intellect and the charm and all of that, that's fantastic. But at the end of the day, if all that clicks in with a character, that's where the magic happens, right? Mm -hmm. It's like there's something in your soul and in your chakras that just like clicks with something that we need. And that's just luck. And it is great privilege. If I had not gone on that day, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Or if I had not been, you know, having a good day, or if I hadn't skipped class, TBH, to go to the audition, <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Isn't that so funny to think about? Like, it, it's shocking what one door kind of can, but I mean, you did that for yourself. But so talk a little bit about how everything else that bloomed out of it. Yeah, so I did a, a first workshop uh, and, you know, they seemed to really like me. Um, and Cindy Tolan and Adam Caldwell were casting. Adam is now with Telsey, but um, they were a team at that, at that point and they were casting that show. And they called me back before the second workshop and they said, I'm sorry, but they are going in a different direction. Um, and I was not too devastated because I was like, I've only done one workshop, I didn't expect this to take me all the way to you know stardom i was like yeah it's great i had a great experience i let it go continue i'm still in school at this point so i continued you know doing school things mm -hmm. um and cindy tolan is just so magical because she said but we feel really bad we really like you we feel bad that they let you go we think you're great so we're gonna give you your second audition in the city it's for this movie it's called the big sick and i was like okay, I've never done any camera work before. Let's see how that goes. Um, you know, <laughs> showed up, auditioned. And you know what? I was so stupid. The audition was like three lines, truly three lines. And I couldn't memorize them because I was so scared. Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> I'm the king. I was the king of that when I was in college and graduated. Seriously, I mean, to this day, I, I, I have such trouble with memorization. It really, really, it irks so many of my peers um, for good reason. And I showed up and the, the casting director, Gail, was like, okay, honey, can you please put your paper down and just say, it's three lines. You can fudge it. I don't care. Can, but can you put your paper down, please? And I was like, yes, I'm so sorry. Yes. Because um, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, okay? Uh-huh. And, but I did it, whatever. I felt nauseous. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to throw up. It happened. Um, and then I booked it, you know, <laughs> it's just so stupid. Uh, so I was like, thank you, Cindy Tolan. And then they called me back and they were like, listen, they're three days into the workshop. We don't like this girl that we cast instead of you. We're so sorry. She cannot sing. And I was like, okay, she's the lead of a musical. Why can't she sing? <laughs> And I found out later it's because they just, they wanted someone thinner. <laughs> so they cast someone that was very beautiful. And by the way, she's my friend. I love her very much. And she's a brilliant and very talented person. It was not her kind of music. That's it. I can't sing a billion things in this world. 
no one can sing everything. And this was just not her cup of tea. The keys were wrong for her. It was on them. It was their responsibility to cast correctly. They didn't do it well. And then they blamed her for it. So anyway, they fired her three days later. They called me back. And yeah, I, I discovered very quickly that it was, it was the weight issue. They, they were desperately were wanting someone that was thinner, which is why they recast me. And they did ask, like, what a, what a slap in the face, you know? But I, also, I was like a teenager. I was so young. And I was like, well, that means I have to lose the weight, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and the director was like, yeah, you know, for Berkeley, you know, it's not me. It's not me. I swear it's the producers. But, you know, it would be nice if you were to lose weight. Um, and for any listeners, I want you to know that I would have gotten that job whether or not I would have done that, number one. And more importantly, if that, <laughs> if that happens to you, it is a, a red flag that is literally showing you the future of how that project is going to go for you every second of every rehearsal. Mm. It, it, it is that simple. It is that general that if you get that indication, walk away because it, it doesn't matter if the show was great. It doesn't matter if the rehearsals were great. It doesn't matter if all the people were great. I took a lot of things away from that show and it was great, but I still was plagued every second of being in that room of like, is it good enough now? Am I good enough now? Mm. Is my weight good enough now? Um, and for someone so young to be dealing with that was just, I mean, you can't focus when it comes down to let's, uh, let's let go of all the emotion part of it. Let's let go of all the political stuff about, about it and just focus on the work. As a working actor, if that is given to you, that is enough of a distraction mm. that you will not be able to focus on the work. And if the work comes first, then you walk away after something like that happens. Yeah. Because it won't come first anymore. No. Well, I, that sort of leads me to my, my next question. That, and I guess we're sort of, I don't know what the right order is in terms of shooting or, or rehearsals, but I want to just talk about then, that's a big learning curve in the rehearsal room. And the rehearsal room at a young age already is, can be scary. Yeah. And so, um, can you talk a little bit about how you learned to navigate that or how you did your best to s try to focus on the work and building a character and locating that throughout rehearsals? Yeah, um, being that young and working, or I mean, it doesn't really even have to do with, with age. Um, if you're at a point in your life where your insides are a shitstorm, and if that's combined with inexperience like it was for me, then you have to quickly learn that in order to do your job, you have to learn stillness. Mm. You have to learn what your boundaries are. And that's not as sexy as breaking down in the middle of a scene. But if you are really in service of the work and the words and the show, then you need to let go of the selfishness of that and like learn that actually being a mess is so overrated as an actor. And it's so much harder and so much better in service of your peers to not be a mess and to have your shit together. So like, you know, have your oxygen mask on so you can help others. Same thing as the beginning of this, you know, help yourself so you can help others. Yeah. Um, so for me, I, I generally learned that people are better than they are worse and yeah. allowing yourself to ask for help when you need it. And God, I needed so much, so much help. I get that. Wow. Yeah. Well, I also want to talk about, did you find, was it a, was it a, a positive 
aspect of working on the piece that you got to move out of town and do it. Um, what does that experience potentially afford you that working in town doesn't? Yeah, so I'm actually going to talk about a, a different project for that question, actually, because uh, because of my aforementioned shitstormness. Yeah, yeah. I think it was it was just a distracted experience, but recently I did this. There's this amazing show being written and I cannot wait for you all to see it. It's called Maya and it's about the, uh, the Indian independence movement. And it is like mega musical litness. It's absolutely incredible. It's big songs, big emotions, and so well-written by Chiang Ng and Eric Sorrells. And I went two weeks, it was only two weeks. And I went two weeks to, to Connecticut in the middle of a cabin with Live and In Color, and I just did this show. And it was like I was eating, sleeping, socializing, working, just completely this show. Everything that I did was this show. It was complete focus. And it was like the most powerful I have ever felt in my entire life to be away from everything yeah, and fully embody what this is. I learned more about myself. I learned more about this show, about my voice, about what I needed. Uh, it was the most disciplined I've been. Uh, and it definitely helps that the cabin was in the middle of like a beautiful, natural, gorgeous place, you know? Um, yeah, I was like, oh, this is what it means to, to fully have like an open vehicle. How can you do that when you're like walking in all humid from the subway into a rehearsal room? It's just like, you have to do a lot more work to compensate. And I think that's what it is. It's like, you see all the actors in sketches, like stretching and doing, making the noises and doing all that stuff. But it's like, we have to, we have to compensate for all of the like emotional and like energetic shit and like dense that we've brought in with us in the rehearsal room. Yeah. You just don't have to do that as much when you're out of town. No, it's so nice especially if there's no cell phone reception. Oh, yeah. I often joke that I want to, like, throw my phone out the window. It's so helpful to not have... I'm terrible that, like, if I get an email, I feel like I have to, like, answer it right away or, like, a text message if I leave it. Like, I'm so bad with that. And there's something magical about leaving and, like, just putting your phone in the corner. Sometimes I'll even just put it on airplane mode when I'm in, like, a rehearsal process and just kind of, like see what happens and it's so nice to just be able to drop in yeah and I you know you. it's kind of like exercise in that way too because it's like if you put those like little time limit things on your phone you start to not see it after a while mm. just like if you're doing the same exercise every day your body is it, it just stays the same yeah it just like doesn't even acknowledge that anything is changing so it's such a similar thing it's like yeah you have to like trick yourself and you have to like change your tactics with your phone a little mm. bit yeah yeah, I totally agree, though. It's so, so helpful. Yeah. Well, uh, talk about focus and, like, you know, a little bit of fear, potentially. Like, let's let's talk about nerves on a film set or or just film sets in general and, and how they are different from the rehearsal room. Uh, for this shoot, did you have an opportunity to rehearse? Um, and, and what kind of outside prep is, is required for this that's different than theater? Um, so again, I guess this is such a, a big theme. God, the dependence on people is so, so underrated. Um, <laughs> but you have to, you have to ask for help. Um, I did not get any time to rehearse as far as like the actual production goes. They did not rehearse anything with us. Um, so I guess my quote unquote rehearsal was all of the nights that I was just going over the three lines in my head, right? That was rehearsal. It was rehearsal when I asked one of my good friends who also really didn't have that much film experience, but they did have experience with teaching me. 
And that's more important sometimes. And I asked my friend Preston Martin to like sit in a room with me and just like hold a camera and like tell me how I look and like tell me what I can do to make the camera my friend. That was a big help um, because I knew that the words have to come first and foremost because when like you have to ask yourself, when I go into survival mode, am I fight, flight, or freeze? And like, I knew for myself, I was going to be a freeze. I was going to be a huge, huge freeze. So I was like, okay, I got to get the words down. I got to get this down because yeah, they give you no opportunity to feel comfortable. Comfort is just not a privilege that you get, <laughs> especially being a newbie. Um, yeah. I mean, I had never ever worked on a set before or in, even in front of a, a video camera for fun before. And suddenly I was in front of like my huge idols and I was doing like 13 hour improv scenes with Kumail Nanjiani. And so it was, <laughs> I knew freeze was going to be the one. <laughs> so just had to breathe, breathe through it. And did you surprise yourself? What did you walk away teaching yourself? Uh, I walked away knowing that whatever the situation is, if something needs to get done in order for a project that I believe in, I will always come through. If it takes a while, it may take a while. If it takes me saying some cringy things and like fucking up, that might happen. But I will always come through and I will always get it done. And that's one thing I have to believe in, in myself for. Because if I didn't, uh, what's the point? <laughs> like, yeah. I have to know that I will always, always deliver. Yeah, I, I feel that. And I actually, I think about that a lot in my own work too. Sometimes I'm regretful sometimes that it takes me a long time in my process to do certain things. Or like, if I have a deadline for something, why does it take me all day to just kind of like do something? But it's like, maybe that's actually sort of you have to trust that that's what you need to go through in order to do the work that you know you're capable of. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that like, just because you're not actively working on it doesn't mean that your subconsciousness is not working on it. Yes. Especially when it comes to acting or music. Yes. Like the absorbing of a musical phrase. Yes. And and it's this idea too that like, um, just because it was so hard and you had to spend so much time on something in the beginning when you started working on things doesn't mean that five years later, you have to spend that much time on that. It evolves as you grow. Yeah. That's I a lesson that I constantly have to remind myself of. Yes. It's in there. It's all, all in there. Uh-huh. Completely. If psychotherapists can like push your clavicle and have like a memory that you don't even know what it is come out of you, then like you can believe that some information has stayed in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. You're like shaking my head right now. This is like a, a true mind game. I'm loving this. Um, well, I want to talk about Octave. Yes. Let's talk about Octave. <laughs> um, I mean, you recently won the Lord Tell Award for Outstanding Featured Actress in a Musical, which bravo. I think I mean, yeah, the Tonys are sick, but I think there probably isn't a cooler award in New York. I think I, I felt like I felt like kind of indie. I felt kind of like, oh, an award that like really like cares about the work that's being made. Yes. No politics, no nothing. It's just no, like No, the Lord Tells are really unbelievably exciting and impressive and I'm so congratulations times a million um before we dive into this show maybe for somebody who wasn't able to snag a ticket which was a very real 
possibility. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what the show is and who you played? Sure. So I would say the show is about eight people that have been completely lost in a very, very big world of what the internet is and are unsure of how to separate themselves from what the gravity of that platform is. And so they're craving some kind of human connection and moment to be together in a space with other people without dissociating or without completely separating mind-body, which we have trouble with now too, being in the same room with someone and not looking at your phone and not even, you know, keeping eye contact. I was just going to say, even just the maintaining of presence. So hard. Um, so I would say it's eight people trying to muddle through that together. And Velma is the newcomer. It's her first time at the meeting. So I believe that she is the eyes of the audience because she is experiencing the show at the same time that the audience, if it's their first time watching, they're experiencing the show. So she is an audience member along with you processing all the information, but also as a person who is in dire need of help. Uh, I think she is the trunk of the show in a huge, huge way because she is the voice of innocence, of youth, and of the pros of this great big world of the internet. Mm, that's so beautiful. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but you know, for anybody who's listened to the album, I'm sure they might agree, like just what you said about the innocence of it or this or that, there's something so, and I wrote about this as a later question, but I wanted to just touch on it, that the fact that your piece begins so innocently, it's acapella completely. There's no support underneath you. I think Dave Malloy, what is so extraordinary about his craft is everything is so character driven and, and it's so supported in that way. And so I think that that's so evident even from the first moment you listen to the track, Beautiful. And in the same way, I think that you talking about your character is the way in, we have to wait so long in the context of the show for you to finally start to reveal those things about yourself. So I think that that's such a, a poignant thing to point out. Sorry, please keep going with what you were saying. No, no, it's, I totally agree. And I think it is, it is mirroring real life. You, you, you cannot have the gratifying experience of catharsis and truth until it's over, until you're on the other side, until everyone has fallen around you, you know? And I think for Velma, she did not feel comfortable sharing her argument until everyone had quieted down. And in the like big, like loud, like garbage truck that is the internet, you cannot speak up and actually be heard until everyone else is quiet. Yeah. And I it is such a beautiful, beautiful way that he has, that he's written her to be the most nervous of all of them, the most fragile, perhaps, from my perspective of all of them. She's the one that truly cannot keep eye contact with anyone for the majority of the show. But when she has something to say, it shines a light and a hole through the shitstorm that is the internet. Yeah. How did you you know, those things that you just said, talk to me about how those things came to be located to you. Is that something that was evident to you the first time reading through either maybe the audition material or the, the, the libretto? Or is that something that began to take shape for you in the rehearsal room? 
Definitely the latter. Um, when I was sent the project, it was really only one or two songs and they were lyrics. Uh, I think there might've been a demo with it, but it was like the first two songs in the show or something. So it was, I mean, Velma, I didn't even know who Velma was. Uh-huh. Um, all I really knew was that like, okay, she represents the tarot card, The Fool. And I trust in that. And I trust in Dave Malloy. And that's all I need to know about that. Um, and during the rehearsal process, yeah, um, finding out the, the, the reason and the truth of like rounding out everyone's opinions with, with a pro and like ending on a hope, a hopeful was I think really, really simple for me because Octet as a show, as a production and as like a cast of people that I hold so dearly to my heart, I was going through a very tough time during Octet and like they were my hope. And so I was in a spiral and to see the hope inhibited every single day in the room when I walked in, it was very easy to be like, okay, so basically all anyone needs is one little flicker of hope and that's it. And mm -hmm. that can sustain a human being. That is enough to sustain a human being going through hell. Yeah. So however you like hope or, or even the notion I, I sometimes like will tell students or, or friends you know, in need of advice or something, the idea of like just having something to look forward to or just this notion of something at the end of a tunnel. Um, so I, I understand that completely. In, in addition to it being sort of a, a challenging time for you, I'm wondering if you could paint a picture a little bit of what the rehearsal room is like. It's such a specific type of material. Were you given like, you know, like you walk into a musical rehearsal, you're given your script and you're given your, your pages of score. Was this, were you given sort of like a libretto? Was it music notation sheets or what was yeah. it like? So uh, pretty much from the beginning, it was all music, right? Uh, obviously. And so it was all music all the time for the majority of it. Um, and Dave was still writing as we were working. Um, and Dave is like very famous for that, <laughs> that he will just, you know, you give him like one note and he'll come back like five minutes later and be like, yeah, cool. So here's like three new songs that I wrote. Um, take out whatever you want. I don't care. Kill my babies and I'll come in with more stuff. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh that's so fascinating yeah and I think it loops back to what we were saying before that like just because it takes you a long time to put pen to paper doesn't mean that the thoughts have been not culminating for a long yeah, time yeah yeah because once he starts writing I mean it's so quick but it's because it's been ruminating in his brain for like who knows how many years you know mm. um yeah so a lot of music and his music is so organic because you know how to feel when you're singing it. It's visceral and it sits in a place in your voice that you could be speaking or praying or shouting. It feels everything on top of singing. Mm. It never feels like you're just singing. Um, and because of that, I think it was really painful to get through it and also like really very gratifying as a group of people to be like, okay. We're going to be singing these terrible lines and these beautiful lines all together in harmony, completely synced up and focusing on that for the majority of the time. Yeah. What, where does, please correct me if I'm saying her name incorrectly, Annie Tippy. Yeah, it's Tip. Tip. Yes, Annie Tip. Where does Annie come in 
in terms of how she objectively shapes from her perspective because you had also you have a a very sort of like I imagine a very busy musical director <laughs> who was working simultaneously you know moving these two ships but what is the benefit of having someone like Annie in the room who can sort of parse all this out yeah Annie is a master translator um she is able to translate complete chaos into clarity and not to say that Dave writes chaos but in the hands of someone that doesn't understand mm. it could be seen as chaos at the hands mm. of someone who doesn't understand the complete genius and intricacies of Dave's work it could be misunderstood and so Annie being as prolific as she is and like being so aware of um aware of what Dave is trying to say she's able to just like it's not even about I'm going to ignore this and I'm going to take out this. She's like a mixer. She's like a literal orchestral mixer where she's able to like bring up the volume on certain things mm. at certain moments in a really beautiful way. And she did that with music in music rehearsals as well as in Interesting. Music. Yeah. I mean, or was doing, or our musical director, Matthias, right. doing all of the, you know, dynamic and the shaping and all that stuff to make it work. And, on, and she never would like contradict that. Right. But on top of that, she would give us such clear intentions that would change our vowel shapes or would change the understanding of the audience's ear and what they get. Um, so she was like an integral part of the music part of it as well. That's, that's cool. Because I feel like you don't often get that in a musical with the opportunity to sort of have it. Sometimes the director sort of just leaves the musical director or supervisor to, to handle that. So I think that has to have been an invaluable yeah, it was anything but separate, you know? Mm. It's like, even if even if it's a, like, there's never a rehearsal where it's like, okay, we're going to have just the tenors and the basses come in today. Right. It's impossible. It yeah. has to every single second and every step of the way. It has All to be of you. separate. All of us. Yeah. I, I, that leads me to my thing that I wanted to just say. I mean, I was so moved by an interview that you said in, in the signature, you know, they did a video series and you talked just sort of about like, it being such an intimate experience in terms of like knowing and learning how everybody breathes around you. And how soon did that become evident to you? You know what I mean? Like how quickly did you realize I'm picking up? Like I understand how this person inhales or like I know when this person's going to need to catch breath or, or something. Yeah, I would say, I mean, it, it, it took, it took a while, uh, I, but I think it would, the first wave of it was, okay, I understand how everyone's tone functions. I understand that when Star goes up to this note, her tone is going to change a little bit from this, from like 60% chest and 40% mix to 70% mix. Mm. So started understanding those things pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, while we were in previews is when it started to be like, oh, okay. So Kuhu always has trouble with measure 80 of this song. So Margot, you're going to have to go a little bit. And this was all unsaid, of uh -huh. course. We didn't right. have to Isn't that it. so fascinating though? That it's yeah. so easy to like detect. Margot and I just did um, Unknown Soldier together at Playwrights. And she, I know. Talk about it like an instrumental. I mean, just like the way that, but all of you had to be firing on the same cylinders. But I mean, it's so amazing and impressive to watch a vocalist and, and a storyteller through a song like that. Like she's so fast. There's just, there's no sort of like, it just happens and she understands and she trusts. And so I imagine that that must be the same for all of you incredible storytellers as well. But 
Yeah. Yeah. Margo. So for anyone that doesn't know, Margo is indeed my biological mom. I love her. (laughs) (laughs) And it's Cybert, not Siebert. Yeah. uh, She, so she's my soprano buddy. Right. And so we were like, the Sopranos were close. The Altos were close because we had to be, we facilitated each other throughout the entire show. We were each other's partners. We had to know how each other, how we breathe, how we move everything. And if there was a show that Margot could feel that like, she's not going to get that note. Oh yeah. She would swoop in, save the day. You know, she would just, she would just immediately get it. Um, I'm a huge nerd for like all things that are vocal, which is why Octet was the perfect, perfect show for me. Perfect. It was like all of the things, the choir, the blend, the mixing, the like, I got to work on my soprano because I, I, it was not treated as a soprano for the majority of my life. Mm. I was seen as an alto because I was a person of color who could do the hard parts. And so people were like, you're an alto. Um, and then I learned that I was this like color tour soprano who knew. Wow. Um, so like Dave gave me that gift too. It's like this, this show has given me mm. so, many, so many gifts, endless yeah. gifts. Well, let's talk about the song Beautiful. Um, and I want to just say, you know, I spoke about it earlier, but what is so striking to me is it, it is so bare bones. And it shows such a remarkably impressive musicianship on your part. I'm so amazed. And, you know, it's difficult. You know, you watch it on American Idol or you watch people like do things. You go in and sing an acapella audition. But just the fact of like standing there and being able to stay on pitch and stay in the middle of like what you need to be doing, it takes a tremendous amount of focus to begin with. But I want to just talk about when you found everything sort of like balancing each other in terms of story and the singing? Yeah, um, I would say it was, it was sometime during, during previews probably, probably a little bit soon. I think I really hit my stride as far as like understanding Velma's journey. I think after opening, to be, to be honest. Um, but I, I, during previews, I started understanding what it actually meant for her to be singing completely alone in that mm. space with the risk of someone emerging from their tea delirium. Um, and you know, whether or not that was just Velma's thoughts or whether or not that was her actually speaking herself through something, whether or not it was an hour of delirium or it was three seconds, it was immensely brave of her to finally come to that point of understanding the duality of what the internet is, the duality of what humanity is, and also the duality of like her self-harm and her depression and what it means for her to have been going through those things. Um, When Beautiful was first written, uh, I was like completely terrified of it. And I found my Finsta recently and there's literally a post from like two years ago that's like, not two years ago, a couple years ago, that was like, uh, Dave just wrote me this song and I am a stupid piece of shit and I, I, I don't know what to do with it. And I, I don't know how to even start on it. And I don't know if I'm capable of understanding what it is. And I still kind of don't. And I think that's exactly why it did its job. Yeah. Um, because I mean, while I was singing an acapella, I did go sharp sometimes and it's because my body wanted to shout. Mm. And me as a musician, I was like, we should stay in key. But when I would hear it happening, I was kind of like, but I want it to go up. 
yeah. and that part of the musicality of it of, and like the release of musicality is musicality <laughs> is like I just need to do it as honestly as I know how and that can be more musical than the actual technical parts of it yes. which is why it doesn't sound pretty like when you hear it on the soundtrack like what is good singing what is bad singing I don't mm. know but it's not pretty it's not like you're going to want to fall asleep to it because it's it is a shout it's mm. a battle cry sometimes and so that's not how I would sing in a studio whatever you know like because right. it's not it's not it's very imperfect it's very rough around the edges but in the moment it is the only way that I could honestly sing that song mm. which really hurt me as a, a singer who wants to be a perfect singer and vocalist right. I get that yeah um I, you talked about sort of like bravery and I wanted to just say, I, I mean, the level of intimacy in general must have been intense. I mean, you were all on top of the audience in a big capacity. And I'm wondering if you ever experienced stage fright and, and how you found your way on the other side of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I screwed up quite badly once when Stephen Sondheim was in the audience because I admire him so much uh and my his work i should say so much mm. um i think there's a huge difference between those two things i don't know him right. but <laughs> love his work and um yeah i really i i really like dug myself into a hole and i think i was very privileged in that way because velma is an inherently nervous and frightful character and i think that gave me an immense amount of like protection and beyond protection it gave me the luxury of knowing that like I don't have to pretend to not be afraid I can actually just be afraid and that's okay as long as I do Velma right and I get the point across that's all I can do um and beyond that stage fright just gets so in the way of the work and again it's like if I want to prioritize the work I need to do something I need to do something to cope with it and so for me I do a lot of mental uh imagining and envisioning mm. Um, my grandfather is actually a saint and in India. And so a lot of his work is based around um, mental empowerment and envisioning and meditating and optimism. That's a lot of the work that he does in the classes that he teaches. Uh, so I was taught from a very young age of envisioning the future in the most positive way and celebrating it as if you've already gotten it, not mm. like you're yearning from it. Because if you wish from a place of yearning, it's just, it's not going to even feel good when you get it. Cause it's like you begged for something and then you got it versus when you wish for something and you imagine that you've already got it. It's like, you're like vibing in your positivity and you're like celebrating the fact that it already belongs to me. It's already in my destiny. Then even when you get it, it's not a surprise and it's not, now I have to live up to the expectations. It's just, ah, the gift that keeps giving. Mm. So like long answer, but in short, uh, stage, stage fright, sure. I just envisioned that like, this is gonna happen and it's gonna be part of the adventure and I'm thankful for it. And I know that it's gonna be great and it's gonna be fine. And I know that the work will come through and that's yeah. all I can do. Uh, and one of my mentors just said to me, um, what did he say? It was so, so good. He said, fortune favors the prepared mind yeah which i think is a louis pastor quote but um he's french i don't know why i said it like that but um <laughs> but um 
Yeah, I'm like, if I'm prepared, and I don't mean like, oh, I'm memorized, but I'm uh-huh. like, if I'm prepared for the, pos- the emotional possibilities within myself, great. I'm fortunate. Great. Yeah. Wow. You're shaking me today, I have to say. I'm like very into this. <laughs> I'm going to like keep listening to like this episode, honestly, because I'm finding so many things that you're saying like profound. Um, I'm so glad. Yeah. I mean, Octet just, there's all the lessons. Yeah. Octet provides so much for us. I mean, the, the wonderful thing about it is just this idea that you can now go back and listen to it. It's definitely something that should grow on you. But um, with that being said, is there a piece of text from the show that you'd be willing to share? Yes, sure. Sure thing. <laughs> this is, I think this cuts off right before the soundtrack happens. Oh, amazing. So what has just happened, if you have seen the show, Marvin has completely um, has completely spiraled talking about Little God. And I'm actually gonna read this whole thing. This is like a little sneak peek because this is not what made it into the show. This is a different version. It's a different script. It's an earlier script. So I'm giving you a little sneak peek of it. You're like the hanged man. It's a tarot card. There's a moment in your life when everything shifts and you actually see the world anew. All the stress and shit of humanity rocks you so hard and you think and think and think until suddenly it's all upside down. Everything you thought you knew, everything you believed in is in question. Nothing looks right. Your lover's face, old books, equations, trees. It's like waking up in a fun house. They say you have to go through that part to get to the really good stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, honestly, I'm shooting myself in the foot that I didn't do this the first season with artists. I'm just finding it so moving to hear it aloud. Um, I'm very grateful that you shared that. I'm Thank you. so, so grateful that you asked me. I, all these questions have just like, put in just like a huge flood of positivity in my life. I really needed this today. Oh, well, good. Um, I mean, I wanted to just ask then as we're, as we're wrapping up, um, what are you most looking forward to tackling uh, when our industry reopens or maybe outside of our industry? Yeah. Um, I've learned what a lot of my desires are during quarantine because I've actually had time to think about what I like and what I dislike. And I think I need to be a little bit messier. And I think I need to be a little bit, uh, (laughs) I need to allow myself to do things that I'm really, really bad at. Um, And I, you know, I say it every month, but it's a little different when you've been kicking yourself in the foot for three months over the same thing. Um, It's given me a big old kick in the ass to like, do bad things and humiliate myself and be okay with that as a libra it's very hard to get off your high horse and just fucking be messy uh but we're gonna try oh my gosh yeah messy is uh, that translates to me even like when i like get a script or i'm reading something and i feel like my notes in the margin have to be completely clean or i can't fold a page or i can't and i'm so inspired when i see somebody next to me who just takes something and i'm broad strokes is able to mess it up and have something lived in. I'm working on doing that myself, you know? You know what helps with my psychosis? What? In order to get there is pretending, pretending like I'm 
this like artist in the Renaissance era who like, who everyone in the town is like, oh, that's crazy old man, you know, Montessaro. And I like, <laughs> pretend like I'm that person and just uh, like do a day like that. Yeah. And feel the natural, like visceral empowerment that comes from doing direct actions. Because once you get a taste of it, it's really easy to keep the ball rolling. Ah. I don't know. Maybe that'll help. Maybe it won't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, well, the way that I end every episode, um, as has become tradition, is with a love note from you um, to the American theater in total. So I'm wondering uh, what keeps you coming back now and why does it continue to ignite your soul? Mm-hmm. Okay. Dear theater, I miss the moments of magic and stillness in which I could stand in a circle full of people and we could breathe in together. And when we exhale, it sounds like heaven. I miss the electricity and I miss ending up at bars late at night, not knowing how I got there. In two gin and tonics, talking to people that I've never talked to before and learning something new about myself every single night. I miss coming home after a show and still feeling the adrenaline pumping, taking off my makeup and going to bed all warm and fuzzy inside from the aforementioned gin and tonics, but also (laughs) from the blood that still hasn't stopped pumping. I cannot wait to be back with all of my peers, all the people that I admire. I can't wait for new works as that is the majority of what I do. I cannot wait to see you again. Love. Wow. Okay. Um, definitely not having tears from that one, but um, yeah, this was truly an, an honor this afternoon. Um, Kuhu, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm sure you have inspired just as many listeners as you've inspired me today. So thank you very much. We can't wait to see you on stage again soon. You are so Bye. Bye.